Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. Great to have you with us again. And Philip, great to have you with us again. It's nice to be back. I'm sorry about missing last week. A touch of bronchitis made life difficult. Well, that would have been hard for podcasting, so it's good you have a voice again this week. Yes, let's see if it lasts. And Yes, let's see. <laughs> and in, in your absence, we've been getting lots of emails and messages from people about, uh, not about your health, but about the various issues we've been discussing in recent weeks. And I thought this week we'd catch up on a bunch of those questions. I've kind of been Good. banking up. Yeah. And so this is a bibs and bobs episode of Two Ways News, where we catch up on a whole bunch of interesting questions about evangelism, about culture, uh, about ministry and the call to ministry and so on. Let's dive in. There's a bunch of questions that relate to evangelism. And the first one I wanted to ask you about was from David. He's been reading your book on the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Good on you, David. I hope you're enjoying it. Well, I've been enjoying it as well. And he quotes from it. It's always dangerous and a bit dis- disconcerting when someone quotes your book at you. But it's a good quote. He says... But I've changed my mind on that bit. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. Here it comes. Okay. Here's the quote. It was the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ who brought me from death to life, just as he brings every Christian believer from death to life. Such an understanding has all manner of implications for our evangelism, but most of those belong to a different book. And that's what you said on page 233. And David writes to say, I wonder what those implications are for evangelism uh, that he had in mind for a different book. Has that book been written? And if not, could you... Talk about what those implications might be. Well, it hasn't been written yet. Uh, it's in the pipeline of any other any other books that I haven't written yet. Um, but the implications, I think, are enormous. We really need to see that the work of evangelism is a spiritual work. It's not an intellectual work. It's not even a moral work. It's a spiritual work. That we are engaged in the spiritual warfare that Ephesians 6 speaks of as we preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And it is the Spirit who does the great work. Uh, Remember Jesus speaking to the uh, rich young ruler and the disciples after that conversation and how they thought, well, if the rich can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And the impossibility of ever seeing anybody converted is an important first step for an evangelist. The possibility of God converting people is likewise the first step of an evangelist. You won't engage properly in the job if you don't understand those two things that are said by Jesus. But there are other implications that happen to it. That then helps me with the the role and place, for example, of apologetics. Um, the arguing, the reasoning. Yes, I argue. Yes, I reason with people. But in the end, it is not my reasoning that is going to persuade someone. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that's going to persuade people, which is why I think being faithful to teaching the gospel itself, explaining the word itself, declaring the word of the gospel itself is more important than the reasoning because it is the word which is used by the Holy Spirit for the... For the gospel is the power of God for salvation rather than my reasoning. Reasoning with people and discussing and arguing and using apologetics is all very good, but it stops lots of Christians from evangelizing because they're terrified that they won't have good arguments or they won't put it across properly or they won't be able to answer objections. When in fact, it's the Holy Spirit changing the heart of the listener 
as the word of God is faithfully declared, which is evangelism, not the capacity for winning debates. Indeed, it saves a sinful person like myself who likes to win debates from using evangelism as a place to express my sinfulness of winning debates. You can win debates and lose people. It's the work of God that we're involved in. That also affects us in terms of, as evangelists, the sense of failure or the sense of success. Either is is bad news. I don't see anybody converted. I go away saying I'm not much of an evangelist. I see people converted. I go away saying I'm a great evangelist. But when I understand that it is the Spirit of God that brings people to new life and not the cleverness of my preaching or the profundity of my arguments, then failure doesn't exist and success doesn't exist. I rejoice that people come to Christ. I mourn when people don't. But it's not about me. It's about them. It's about God's work in their lives. And it also shows me that whoever I'm speaking to, they're never beyond the possibility of salvation. So I don't just preach to the people who, in sales language, the low-hanging fruit. The person whom you would think has absolutely no chance of ever coming to Christ, under the power of the Holy Spirit, may well come to Christ as I just speak the gospel to them. So I don't shy away from speaking to the antagonist any more than I will be thinking that I've got a great chance of seeing someone converted because they've been raised in church life. It's it's the work of the Spirit of God. One of the things I've noticed over the years, actually, is that amongst the people who lead the atheist campaign against a university mission, you'll often find the person who gets converted. And so some of the people I've seen converted over the years have been the most fierce opponents whom no one would think would become a Christian but they are kicking against the goads and the spirit is more powerful than their willfulness. So there's lots of implications. There's just a few that I've rattled out for you because I haven't written the book yet. But as you stop to think about them, it's really important that we understand that it's the spirit's work, not not in the sense ours. He is working through us. The other passage that springs to my mind is um, when you were talking about the power of the gospel word, even a word that we might think is not that powerful or not that impressive uh, is, of course, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, where Paul makes a point of the fact that for many people, the gospel is not impressive. It appears weak. It appears foolish. But God has deliberately crafted the gospel and crafted his salvation in such a way that it does shame people who are looking for the impressive thing or the wise thing or the powerful thing. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say the whole reason that we grasp that secret wisdom and understand it and realize what God is doing is because of the Spirit of God. It's only by the Spirit that we can grasp what God has done and understand the things that we've received. Uh, And so it's all spiritually discerned. It's why for the non-spiritual person, it's all folly. It's all stupid. Yes, there are many parts of the scriptures you can see. You know, out of the mouths of babes and infants come the praises of God. The passage I love in 1 Thessalonians 2, where he thanks God that when they heard the word from him, the words of men, that they didn't receive it as the words of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. Mm. 
For the words of men are the words of men, but the words of God are the powerful words by which the world has been created. And that 1 Corinthians passage is so important. Verse 21, I think it is, which says that God, in his wisdom, chooses not to be known by human wisdom. And so it's the plain statement of the truth by which God will be known and it will be received not by sinful people, but by sinful people who are being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We who are dead in our sins and trespasses, we will never come to life without the Spirit bringing us to life. I think that book on evangelism needs to be written sometime, Philip. I think we've got a chapter outline almost in the things that you've been saying today, at least for one part of it. (laughs) We should get on to that. We should. Let's get on to the next question, though. It's from Jono. He loved our episode about the twits and about the new and improved twits and the whole process of sanitisation of literature and what we said there about culture and about the nonsensical kind of uh, approach of contemporary culture to a bunch of these things. But he had a question about what this looks like in everyday conversation. His question is this. I loved it so much, this post, that I was wondering if you or Philip could have any insights in how one might have a categoric, that's categoric with a K, conversation about these kinds of things. I'm not sure how I'd bring this up tactfully or how I'd challenge someone on this, perhaps especially if it's less of an intellectual issue for them and more of an emotional one. And so his question is... Yeah, and it's right. And in one sense, it's pretty hard to explain it here it's more something to to illustrate to to be with him in in doing it but one move is to talk about not the issue they are concerned about but a parallel one that they've got no emotional commitment to that's one way of doing it and so you say oh it reminds me i saw a very funny youtube the other day about this man who was saying he saw himself as a 10-foot gorilla and you move into that which is not personal with the person you're talking to, but is part of the way the world has become really irrational and unscientific and, and stupid. And so you shift it away from the personal and get them to agree with the concept that there are things being said today which really are very silly. A key element to it always is humour. Humour diffuses lots of antagonisms. And so if you can pick on the the funny things and show them the funny things, once people start laughing with you about something, it's much harder for them to have that same commitment to the views they were holding beforehand. And so satirising, humouring the concepts that the world has got so back to front, I think, is an important thing. Uh, The election recently, I was a little disappointed this time I didn't have the opportunity of talking to the Animal Justice Party people because I like talking to them as I come in to vote each year and uh, I I ask them about the animals, which animals they want to protect. And, of course, they always go for polar bears and other nice things. The koalas are very important to protect, etc. But I try and move them down to cockroaches. I want to know if they want to protect cockroaches or not and uh, see how far I can go to to have them... You know, what about mosquitoes? Do we want to protect mosquitoes? What about malaria-carrying mosquitoes? And how far will they go before they 
want to say, no, that is beyond. And then when they get there, I want to say to them, well, what about fetal life? What about, you know, a, a baby in its 38th week of conception? Because surely that's got some more valuable contribution to life and the universe than the mosquito or the cockroach. And so it's edging people down to their plate. That's a slightly different tactic. That is the tactic of accepting people's viewpoint and accepting their emotions. And then in accepting their emotions, actually helping them to see how inadequate their emotional response is. That's a different approach to it, but it's one of the ways of uh, the counsellor is not to disagree with people, but to accept not the content of what they're saying, but the emotions of what they're saying. It's part of perceiving and seeing in a culture, in a framework of mind, just how, how we've been effectively brainwashed. I went last night to see a high school production of West Side Story. Yes, I have many grandchildren. And it was a very nice production. It was really done, well done. And I haven't seen West Side Story for a long time. Um, how would you describe West Side Story? Tony? It's a musical set in the 1950s, 1950s New York. Yes. And it's a remake in 1950s New York of Romeo and Juliet. It's about star-crossed love between a young man and a young woman who belong to different gangs in this case, who aren't allowed to mix different... And paralleling the Montagues and the Capulets from Romeo and Juliet. Is that a decent summary? Yeah, it's a way of saying it. And it's violent. Um, spoiler alert, you know, it's like Romeo and Juliet. There's death at the end. People die. People die in this. And I, I was fascinated that towards the end, when there's been a murder, um, two women, uh, one's boyfriend has murdered the other's boyfriend, and they're there singing to each other and one sings about how you can't trust that man you've got to get rid of him and the other responds but I love this man and they come to a, and a kind of a, a concord at the end of these two songs that go together which really is saying when your love is so strong there is neither right nor wrong and I thought here we are in the 1950s saying love is love. No wonder it's so powerful in the 2020s because for a whole generation, 1950s, two generations, three generations, I suppose, we have been imbued with this idea that in real love there's neither right nor wrong, which over again is seen in things like, you know, the adulterer saying, well, I'm... I just love her. I just love him, and I don't love you anymore. So I don't stay with you, and so love becomes the the one absolute that we have. And it's so difficult for we Christians because we want to preach God is love, but what we're talking about with that word is so dramatically different. I mean, one Corinthians thirteen says that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Uh, love loves the truth, but the world's love, a la Hollywood and New York, 
it's got nothing to do with morality. It's got nothing to do with right and wrong, true or false. It's just got to do with the overwhelming emotion that they have. Now, it's easy to see what's wrong in other people's cultures, but our own culture, well, it, it's just... It's what we swim in and we don't see it. Yes. It's what you just raised. If you don't critique your culture, you don't see truth from falsehood. And our culture has been, say, has been saying now, at least since the 1950s, love is everything. And love is not moral. And love... Now, helping people see the stupidity of that is an important part of evangelism. And that's what John is asking about how we do it. But I do it by seeing a show last night, seeing the problem, and then telling you about it the next day, even before you say something silly to me. It reminds me of another useful way to have conversations with people, and that is uh, you're saying don't critique the particular issue that might be really important with them. Critique something that's parallel, that's not as emotionally charged. Another way to do it is to critique yourself. Yes. To critique some of the things that I've believed and I've thought and I've realised about myself, the things that I've taken for granted, the positions that I've held and just grew up with and assumed and didn't ever think about. But when I stop and look at them and think about it, they're nonsensical. They make no sense. Yes. Um, and so it's often a good way to have a conversation is to make yourself the butt of the critique rather than, other, rather than the other person. Yeah, and that's why that, uh, that humour that Australians love so much, that is self-deprecatory humour, works. Because by making fun of myself, I'm showing that I've come to terms with myself as a psychological, well-being, healthy person. But more than that, I'm saying, actually, that is stupid, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's but. And if I can say that about what I'm thinking and feeling, it encourages you to be able to say about what you're thinking and feeling as well. And that connects with, in a sense, one of the most important things, Jono, to think about in these conversations Love isn't just a feeling. It's not merely desire. Love is a commitment to the benefit of the other person. And in conversation, that's what we're seeking to do. We we want what's best for this person. We want to listen to them. We want to see where they're at so they can grow and change. We We want to take the trouble to converse and open up conversation with people because we love people. And the whole course of a conversation, the aim of such a conversation is to help and encourage and in some way help that person make it take a step forward in their understanding. It's it's not to win a debate, it's not to score points, it's not to seem clever. Uh, it's love, real love, love which sees that there's a good for this other person in God that we want them to understand and experience. And yet, Tony, sometimes we need to actually do that other thing and say to the person, but make sure we're saying it in a loving kind and out of our true concern for them, to be able to say to the person, you don't really believe that because, frankly, that's silly. That's a very loving thing to say. Is there anything more loving than to try and help people see that what they're saying out, out loud is not really what they could possibly yeah. think is the, is the case? Um, a change of tack in this next question. Uh, this question relates to uh, an episode of our newsletter podcast from last year, in November, on the gospel call to ministry, where we were discussing 
Why do some ministries succeed in recruiting people into full-time gospel ministries and others don't? And what are the key factors in calling on people to give their lives up for the gospel and, and go into ministry in different kinds? Um, and the brother who's written this particular letter um, has heard that call and did some MTS at a, different, at a certain point, but it didn't work out well or it didn't finish um, with him proceeding on into gospel ministry and going to more college or anywhere else of, of that kind. And his questions relate really to how do we deal well with those situations? And there are questions like these. He has a few questions. For example, he says, why do you think exhortations to vocational ministry seldom mention that all Christians are part of the body of Christ and we all have different gifts. A related question, similarly, why is deciding not to pursue vocational ministry after a, an apprenticeship or an MTS program seldom showcased as success? Um, in other words, Philip, the question is, how can we call people to the ministry of the gospel, whether that's in a lay or everyday sense or in a vocational sense, without creating problems for the person for whom that either isn't appropriate, they just haven't got the gifts to go into full-time gospel work, or they give it a bit of a try and it doesn't quite work out. How can we issue that call to ministry without that feeling like it's failure? I'm sorry to hear that uh, he's been in these struggles. Um, I don't know the situation particularly, so I can only speak generically rather than about him him in particular or his particular situation. I can feel the hurt that is there, especially in that first question you ask about how rarely do you hear this subject being preached on this way. Um, it's It's got to do with where you are in that regard. I mean, sometimes people hear preaching badly and Things are said, they just never noticed them before. Uh, sometimes preachers don't preach the things that they should. Um, I would have thought that it's important in the teaching of the gospel that we teach all Christians and ministers in whatever context they're in and that the difference between full-time ministry and non-full-time ministry is got to do with full-time. It's got, got to do with ministry, that all Christians are... Um, all Christians are tent makers. We either pay for ourselves or other people fund us. So the difference has got to do with funding. It's got to do with the amount of time that you can give to something. But it's got nothing to do with the quality of ministry per se. Um, the or the Bible, importance of the ministry or the value of the ministry. Or... I've, I've constantly tried to teach that the Sunday school teacher teaching three-year-olds is doing the same thing as the preacher who's preaching to the adult congregation. And it's uh, the the three year old Bible teaching is very important. It frames and shapes it. And Mrs. Cooper taught me when I was two, and I can still remember Mrs. Cooper. It's a very important moment of life when you first released from your parents' control, placed in the hands of an other adult who tells you about the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is terrifically important. It may not be, and was not in that case a matter of paid ministry, but it's every bit as important as any other ministry of God's word. And so it's also important that when people are challenged about giving up their working life, their tent making, in order to pursue more ministry, that it is part of that bigger context of the fact that all Christians are called to minister. 
that when Jesus said, anyone what come after me must deny himself, take up the cross and follow me, he goes on to say, for whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so losing our life for the gospels is part of, you can't accept Jesus without accepting Jesus' ministry of the salvation of mankind. In whatever part you play in that, you're committed to it. And it's only in that kind of context that I'd want to call people away from their tent making. So that first kind of question that he asked, maybe you repeat it for me. Uh, why do you think exhortations to vocational ministry seldom mention that all Christians are part of the body of Christ and have different gifts, as in 1 Corinthians 12? Yeah, well, I think you've been in the wrong church if you're not hearing that, or maybe you didn't listen and hear that, because that should be the background upon which the call to giving up other works in order to do this uh, is set. But what's the next one that he got? Uh, why is not deciding to pursue a vocational ministry, such as not going into MTS or perhaps finishing an apprenticeship and then saying, actually, no, I'm, I'm going to go back into the workforce and I'm going to do other things, other kinds of ministry. I'm not going into full-time ministry. Why is that not showcased as, as, as a good outcome or a successful outcome? Well, in part because it's not a good and successful outcome. It's in part um, a sign that we have misunderstood who the person is. Why do I say it that way? Well, because... You know when Jesus says, whoever puts his hand to the plough and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's not, Christian ministry and entering to a paid Christian ministry is not something that we should just uh, um, suck and see. You know, Let's just try this out and see how it's something that we should move to a default position of life. And... When we recruit people into full-time ministry in terms of, well, why don't you just give it a try, we are diminishing the seriousness and importance of what it is we're calling upon them to do. It's also a failure in terms, I think, of pastoral failure. I've always taken it as one of my failures when this happens. That is, while there may be a general call upon people that they may give up their their working life to take on this task, the actual conversation of a person doing it is personal. I remember Helen Rosevear saying years ago that if you have missionary calls at big conventions, you wind up with emotional missionaries on the field and they are a menace. There's a sense in which the pastor's responsibility is to sit down with a person and talk through whether they are suitable whether they are showing the signs that would make this a reasonable thing to do. And so when, after a couple of years, we come to the conclusion that really this person's gifts, abilities, aptitudes, character, whatever it may be... Sometimes it's capacity and just Capacity for work and the like, yes. When we come to the conclusion that that's really not going to work for them, as a pastor, I don't feel they have failed... I feel I have failed because I should have seen and known them better before I encouraged them. I should have discouraged them earlier. And I noticed that in the years in which I was running an MTS program that the majority of people who dropped out or who decided not to pursue it further, the majority of the ones that we had 
actually came from outside our ministry. I didn't know them well. They were people who recommended from overseas to me and things like that. And it was a, a small percentage. Um, we we actually knew it was it was just five percent. But of the five percent, more than half of them were not actually members of our congregation that we had pastorally cared for enough to have a wise choice and so taught me not to take outsiders actually to to be very wary of taking outsiders they're people I had to know well before I would take them on board because I couldn't give them wise pastoral advice having said that there were still others that I look back and that was my error my failure to know them better and to care for them uh, enough to have warned them beforehand. When we do come to that conclusion, the follow-up work, I think, was very important. Having made that mistake in encouraging somebody when I shouldn't have, when we see that it's not, I want to make sure that they do not feel as our questioner has felt. I want them to understand that it's not failure in their sense. I want them to see the other good things that they can be doing, the things that we have learnt in these last two years by which we can channel their energies, their abilities, their gifts, their skills, and to lionise them for it because it's important for their sake, it's important for the congregation's sake, and it's a disaster for them to continue on feeling an obligation that they've got to go ahead now because they've put their hand to the plough uh, I've had several people who refused advice and went ahead anyway and it was always bad for them. It was bad for the church. It was bad for the name of Jesus. So caring for people in the afterward who have actually tried and have found it's not for them is a very important thing to do. Having said all that, there are other people who, having gone ahead gone to theological training and then gone out into full-time ministry who down the track have burnt out, who have failed in one way or another. And I don't see that in the same sense of failure in the recruiting. I see that that Christian ministry is being on the battlefield and on the battlefield people get hurt. There are casualties. There are casualties. I'm very sorry for them when I can have enough of a relationship to be able to uh, speak to them I try to do so it's got nothing to do with the recruiting it's got nothing to do with the MTS training it's got to do with the hardship of Christian ministry and uh, in as much as we're able we've got to look after the people who suffer the loss of the or the the casualty of the Christian warfare sadly sometimes uh, I haven't been able to do that it is a difficult subject. Uh, a number of things just occur to me as you're, you're speaking. One is that uh, as I've grown, grown older in ministry, I've been around for longer, more and more of my friends, colleagues, fellow workers, similar stages of life have really suffered the scars and wounds of, of Christian ministry, of hurt, of accumulated um, emotional wear and tear uh, that then is manifested physically or is connected with other physical issues that just mean you wear out and conk out in ministry and just haven't got it in you anymore. In so many ways, as I think of a number of friends who've been in that circumstance, it's 
it's it's almost like in in army terms like an honorable discharge it's it's yes. it's i feel a great deal of honor and affection for for the suffering that they've gone through for the gospel and it's a good thing to a little bit like the apostle paul who tells us of of all his hardships and wounds uh, sometimes those wounds are too much for us and that's just the nature of of the frailty of our human existence and it's it's a good thing to have to have spent and expended your life and energy in the gospel even if you bear the consequences down the track. Yes, and I confess that I have always, or rather I profess that I have always told and warned people, but I know they have not heard. When you're a young man, young woman, uh, full of the successes of life, to be told that this is going to be painful and difficult, you'll be persecuted and hated, and people say all manner of evil against you. And it will cost you far more than you realise. They do not hear you saying it. It's it's not that you haven't said it. It's not that you haven't said it repeatedly and tried to illustrate it by pointing to your own life and things that have gone wrong. Just is not a message that is easily received. Uh, and Jesus does it with Peter, he keeps telling the disciples that, you know, it's going to be this, it's going to be this. Peter is right up to almost the end saying, you know, I'll die with you until it happens. And then he denies Jesus three times. It's, It's the naivety of youth, which in a sense, if you didn't have, you'd never try anything. Um, but for some of us, God has been kind and enabled us to go through to the very end. For others, there's all kinds of problems they've had. One's not better than the other. They're God's servants, and there's not to be criticism. It's also true that in whatever ministry we end up doing, whether we're ministering in a full-time vocational sense as pastors or elders and and so on, whether we're ministering in our families, raising our children, uh, serving in our local churches, whether we're ministering in Sunday schools, um, there's hardship and hard work in all of those ministries. And it's really important, I think, to end on the note that that all ministry is does have that uh, common sense of purpose and call and direction and importance. Um, I think lying behind some of the questions that are coming through here is quite a valid concern that it's easy for Christians to fall into a kind of a clericalism and a kind of a uh, that there are the people who are engaged in the professional ministry who have a certain status, and there's the rest of us who don't have that status. And we're sinful people, and it's easy for those sort of attitudes to uh, to grow within Christian fellowships, uh, because sometimes it actually suits both sides. It's, it's awful for both sides. It's awful to pride yourself, and it's awful to envy others. Exactly. It just is. It just is ungodly both ways. The Sunday school teacher of three year olds, I champion because I think they're doing a fantastic job. And the person who puts out the chairs and puts them away afterwards. I always think when I go to conferences, the two most important people I've got to deal with are the people at the sound desk and the cooks. Because no conference works well with the sound desk people not working well. And if the cooks don't cook well, it's a miserable weekend. And so I think, you know, you've got to see the value of any and every ministry that comes in the name of the Lord Jesus and not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. Absolutely. 
I hope that's a, a helpful answer and um, to our brother who's written that heartfelt letter and good letter with lots of great questions. We hope that discussion has been helpful. And for uh, the rest of you listening to Two Ways News, that it's prompted you to think about the call to ministry, what the gospel call to ministry really is. It's a call to all of us to give up our lives uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the sake of others. And I hope our brother also is able to talk to someone in his church, in his situation, and not just let these concerns trouble him without dealing with them in relationship to the people that he's been in connection with. Indeed, indeed. Well, thanks for being with us on this episode of this wide-ranging episode of Two Ways News. We've covered a bunch of different questions and bounced around to a number of different topics. I hope that's been useful and helpful. And perhaps to finish, as we always do, we should pray. And how about I close in prayer, Philip? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fellowship we have as as your people, for all those who listen to Two, two Ways News and send in questions, uh, and for the opportunity to speak together about these things. We pray that the things we've talked about today will be helpful not only for those who've asked the questions, but for all of us. And especially we pray, Lord, that in our evangelism with others, in the way we converse and open ourselves up to other people, that we would be confident and curious, that we'd be loving and kind, and that we take the opportunity to open conversation and share uh, what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus with others in all sorts of situations that you, you put us in day by day. And Father, on the issue of ministry and all the many difficulties and hurts that come with gospel ministry in all its forms, uh, we pray we would all serve you, Lord, that we would flee from pride or from status or from creating classes of Christians, uh, but that we would all hear your call to minister your gospel, Lord, and to give up our lives and to suffer for doing that. And we pray all these things, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.